you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Esther chapter 9, found in the Old Testament. Esther chapter 9, and as was mentioned earlier, today is the day we're scheduled to conclude our brief series through this really magisterial book of the heart of God and the goodness of God. And for those who have not been part of our series, and even for those who have, and especially for the younger people, um, my daughters I think represent how the younger people might feel as I've told them the story of the book of Esther time and time again, and I've left them on cliffhangers over and over and over like the book of Esther loves to do. I would like to tell you all the whole story of the book of Esther as the introduction to our final sermon in the series. So... Here we go, and then we'll read a portion from chapter 9 and the whole three verses of chapter 10. If I were to just summarize the story of the book of Esther, which is a true story, it's not a once upon a time in a make-believe way, it's a once upon a time in a very true, real way in human history, I'll just give you one little summary from each chapter. Here we go. In chapter 1, The book begins with the lens zooming in on King Xerxes, Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. He's the king over a huge swath of planet earth. The Bible tells us 127 provinces. And he was a really prideful man and he loved to show everybody how great he thought he was. So one thing he decided to do was throw a party that lasted six months long and he invited anybody and everybody to come to the party but then there was a special set of days right at the end of his party where in the capital city he threw a super super party and he provided all kind of fancy stuff for the people in fact the sofa the couch was made out of gold the floor had diamonds and rubies and other kind of precious jewels embedded into it i mean you were literally walking across an expensive pavement as expensive as possible. He provided wine and food and so forth. And on the last day of his huge party, chapter 1 tells us that he wanted to show everybody how beautiful his queen was. Vashti was her name. But Vashti, when she was summoned by the king, said, no way. I'm not coming. I don't care who you are and what you say. I'm not going to just parade my beauty in front of your drinking buddies. So... The king was embarrassed. And guess what he did? He goes to his friends and he says, what do you guys think that I should do? Chapter 2 tells us that they say, well, um, you need to get a decree written and send it to all the people and say, I'm getting rid of Vashti and any wife that doesn't honor her husband, you're going to be dispelled and put out in disgrace too and I'm going to search for a new queen. Well, that's exactly what happened. He puts Vashti away and chapter 2 tells us that a nationwide, empire-wide, 127 province-wide search is made to bring the most beautiful women from the whole land to the capital city of Susa, to the king's citadel, where they undergo a year-long beautification treatment. Special spices and Skin treatments, special food and beautification treatments, all sorts of things happen. And then one by one by one, they're called in to meet the king and no doubt to have some kind of 
inappropriate and unsolicited encounter. Well, Esther, of all the beautiful women, Hadessa, the Jewish girl, whose parents had died, who was raised by her cousin, Mordecai, was the one who found favor in the king's sight and she became queen. Well, I took a little more detail in that portion because it's really significant that we understand that Esther just so happened to be the lady that the king chose to be the queen. Well, a couple of guys in the kingdom didn't like the king. And they were the king's servants. And they had access to the king's palace. They had a key to his bedroom doorway. They could go in there anytime they wanted to if they had good or bad intentions. And those two guys, servants of the king, were standing outside the gate of the citadel one day and they were talking about a plan to kill the king. But the cousin of Esther who raised her was sitting out there at the gate and he overheard their plan to assassinate the king. And he sent a servant to tell Esther, and Esther told the king in Mordecai's name about these bad guys' plan. And the king did something that he wasn't really accustomed to do in the book of Esther. He actually investigated it. He actually took his time. He actually did kind of a wise thing. And it was found out to be true, and the king said, okay, I'm going to make an example out of these two guys. And he had them both killed. Well, that story was written down in the king's book, but then we get to chapter 3 and fast forward through the story. The king, surprisingly, honors a guy named Haman. Haman the Agagite, who's a representative of the ancient enemies of the people of God, the Amalekites who were led by a guy named King Agag all the way back in the book of Exodus. And then who Samuel, I'm sorry, Saul, failed to exterminate when God told him to kill the Amalekites. And backstory, Haman represents the Amalekites and he is from the line of Agag. Well, Haman's honored. We would think that Mordecai, the guy who said, hey, there's some people trying to kill you, and it found out to be true, we would think that he's the guy honored. But he's not. It's Haman. And part of Haman's initiation ceremony was that he was to ride through the city and everybody in the whole city was to bow down to Haman, this new kind of vice president guy in the land of Persia, and everybody was to honor him. Well, everybody did that, except for one person. And that one person's name was Mordecai. And Haman was so mad. How dare this man not bow down to me? And Mordecai said, I don't bow down to anybody except for God alone. And Haman found out whose God is this man's God. And Haman found out that Mordecai was a Jew. So, in order to hurt Mordecai as much as he possibly could, not just hurt him, but hurt him as much as he possibly could, Haman came up with a plan through the roll of dice to destroy not just Mordecai, but he rolled the dice to pick a day to destroy all of Mordecai's people. All the Jews. It landed on the, thir- on the 12th day of the 13th month, the month of Adar. Well, 
Haman rises to power. He plans this huge plot to destroy the Jewish people, to kill them all. The king endorses it. Letters go out everywhere saying that it's going to be so. And in chapter 4, Mordecai and Esther and the Jews are fasting and praying and seeking God. God, help us. God, help us. They're pouring their hearts out. They're in sackcloth and ashes. They're seeking God's face. And the big, pivotal moment of the book of Esther Mordecai encourages Esther to go to the king and say, we got to stop this plan. And Esther says, but if I go to the king, he'll kill me because I hadn't been invited. And you guys know the story. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. Mordecai having said, perhaps you've been raised up by God for such a time as this. This is why you got selected to be the queen instead of all those other beautiful women. So in chapter 5, Esther goes to the king. In one of the most significant moments, the king holds out his scepter to Esther. That indicates his approval, his acceptance of her. And he asks her, what is it that you want, my queen? I'll give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And Esther, in that moment, doesn't tell him what she wants. Could you imagine how her heart's thumping inside of her chest? How she's elated with relief Enjoyed to know that she's been accepted and not annihilated. But Esther says in chapter 5, would you and Haman come with me to a banquet tonight? And then I'll tell you what I want. So she had prepared and she throws this huge banquet and indeed Haman and the king and Esther all come. And the king says it again. Esther, what is it that you want? Up to half of my kingdom, I'll give it to you. And for some reason, the Bible doesn't tell us, Esther read the room, she read the moment, she was sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and she just knew now wasn't the time to say it. So she said, actually, if both of you would come back tomorrow, I promise I'll tell you what's on my heart. And the king and Haman say, sounds great to us. The banquet couldn't have been better. Let's do it again the next night. And on that night, Haman goes, gets all his closest friends. He gets his wife. And he has a huge brag session. Look how great I am. Look how awesome I am. Look, I'm the second in command of all of Persia. I write decrees. They go out to the land. Everything I say is getting done. And oh, by the way, I got the king's signet ring on my finger. And I get to go to parties with the king and queen that nobody else is invited to. And just in case you didn't know, I'm invited to another one tomorrow night. But, there's this one guy. Mordecai. I hate him. He won't bow down to me. He won't honor me. I hate Mordecai the Jew. And we've been saying every week just about in the series on the book of Esther, until Jesus is enough for you, nothing else ever will be. And Haman's such a bold portrait of that well on that very same night when Haman's having his brag fest and telling everybody how much he hates Mordecai on that very same night after banquet number one the king Ahasuerus Xerxes he can't sleep just so happens that he gets struck with insomnia on that very same night and so what does he do but tell his servants to come to him and read to him from the book of the chronicles of the king so they pull out volume whatever and they do the lucky dip like some of us do with our Bibles. Let your finger fall. And they just start to read to the king who can't go to sleep, hoping that the counting of the sheep of reading the book will help him go to sleep, but he doesn't go to sleep. He starts to listen. 
And the page that they just so happened to read on that night that he just so happened to not be able to sleep was about that time when Mordecai overheard about those two guys wanting to kill him. And then the king started listening more carefully. He said, did we ever, did we ever do anything to honor Mordecai? That's the same guy that Haman's saying that he hates. And oh, by the way, I didn't tell you that his friends and his wife said, we have a good idea. Why don't you build a gallows in your backyard and kill him on it tomorrow? And about the time they're telling him that and Haman goes out to start the construction project, the king is saying, have we ever done anything to honor Mordecai? And just about that time, the sun has risen and Haman's done with his construction project and the king is saying, we got to do something. uh, The king looks out and says, who's that standing out there on the king's patio? And it just so happens to be Haman who finished his gallows and is on his way to the king's chamber to say, can I kill Mordecai? But before he can get a word out of his mouth, the king says, oh, that's Haman. Bring him in here. And the king speaks first and says... What do you think, Haman, that I should do as the king for the man that I desire to honor? And Haman thinks, he's talking about me. And so Haman says, you should give him your robe. You should make sure he gets the ring. You should parade him through the city. You should make everybody bow down. And you should have the person that leads the entourage scream in front of all the people, thus shall the man be, honor, uh, be treated who the king desires to honor. And the king says, that's a great idea. You go do that for Mordecai, the Jew. I'm sure as Esther's heart was thumping through her chest, Haman's heart had to sink down into his stomach. But he goes and honors Mordecai. And that night, banquet number two. And they're having a party, but Haman doesn't feel quite the same way he felt the night before when he was bragging to his friends. And the king, with all the spread in front of them, says to the queen again, ask anything you want, Esther, it'll be done for you, up to half the kingdom. And Esther said, well, I really wouldn't bother you with my request if it only meant that I was going to have a bad day or a bad life. I actually wouldn't even bother you with my request if it meant that all of my people were going to have a terrible life. If we were going to be sold into slavery and we were going to be treated terribly, I wouldn't even waste my breath wasting your time. But there's a bigger problem Somebody wants to kill me and all my people. You see, I've not told you yet, but I'm from the Jewish people. And the king said, who's going to put hands on my wife? Who's going to kill her people? And Esther then takes her well-manicured finger and points it at Haman. Haman the Agagite. He's the one that put the decree out to kill my people 11 months from now. 
And so the king stands up from the table and he runs out of the room. He's so infuriated and mad, he doesn't know what to do, can't contain himself. Instead of saying something, perhaps in that moment that's uncalculated, he goes out and collects his thoughts. And Haman gets up, and Esther gets up, and Esther goes and sits on the golden sofa. And she's probably polishing her well-manicured nails. And Haman throws himself down in front of her. And he's begging for his life. And the king walks back in. And it looks like Haman is making a pass at his wife. And so now he's double mad. And he looks to his servants and he sends the signal and they go grab Haman. They put a bag over his head. And they say, oh king, um, Haman's been up all night too. He was building a gallows to kill Mordecai, the guy who, you remember, saved your life? Haman was going to kill him today. What do you think we should do with him, king? They clearly had set it up pretty well. And the king said, go impale him on the gallows. You fast forward from that moment, We've worked our way through years and years and years of history in the Persian Empire in the little summary that I've tried to tell you. But there's still a problem. Not only has Haman died and the queen been spared, but the problem, as you know, remains that there's a decree out there in 127 provinces in the month of Adar to kill all the Jews. And so Esther goes back to the king and she says, through weeping. We've got to do something to save my people. And the king takes off the ring that he had received back from Haman's wicked finger and he puts it on Mordecai's hand. And through Esther's appeal, Mordecai is given permission to write a new decree reversing the curse to save the Jewish people. And the decree says basically this, nobody attack the Jews. But if anybody does, the Jews have my full permission under Mordecai's pen stamped with my signet ring to annihilate anyone who hates them and attacks them. On the very day that Haman said they were to be exterminated. Well, to conclude this little summary, that day came. And on the very day in the month of Adar that Haman had selected through the random roll of the chips, the Jews gained mastery over their enemies. And the next day, they celebrated their hearts out. Not only 75,000 people throughout the Persian Empire, but in the capital city, Haman and all ten of his sons had been exterminated, annihilated. The enemies of God's people had been put to death. And the Jews couldn't help but have spontaneous joy. And our passage today just tells us, keep the party going. Today's about a feast and a faithful ruler. And I'll just tell you right now, as a setup for the punchline, which I think that you'll be able to fill in the gaps for at the end of the sermon, what you're going to see at the book of Esther is the same thing you see at the end of the whole Bible. At the end of the book of Esther, we're about to see God's happy celebratory people who were once tyrannized and terrified, now saved and celebrating 
But instead of seeing all their faces, you just catch the spirit of their joy. And the lens zooms in on one great man. That's the way the book of Esther ends. That's the way the whole Bible ends. So I invite you to our feast and faithful ruler, Esther chapter 9. We'll pick up the reading in verse 20. In fact, join me as we pray and we'll just read the passage along with the points that we draw out. Let's pray. Oh Father, I pray that You would remind us that You're the same God who was ruling in the hearts of kings and overseeing sleepless nights in the book of Esther. And that You would cause us through seeing the cross of Christ and the victory You've won for Your people, that You are always, always, always keeping Your promises and preserving Your people. You are always doing the good things in the hard things to bring glory to Your name and to preserve Your people alive. Oh God, I pray that You'll take this Word and You would bring great glory to Yourself now. I'm asking that You would save sinners and sanctify saints. I pray that every lost person who can hear my voice would flee to Jesus for refuge and find the grace that comes through Him alone for salvation. And God, we ask that You would cause this church to be caught up into the joy that Jesus has purchased for us. We ask in His name. Amen. Verses 20-32 to of chapter 9 are about the Feast of Purim how it was instituted and then memorialized for every successive generation. So that's the feast. And then chapter 10, verse 1-3 to is about Mordecai's greatness and goodness. That's the faithful ruler. So the feast at the end of chapter 9, the faithful ruler at the beginning of chapter 10, those are our two points. Under the feast, there are three sections to verses 20-32. through Let's just point them out and then we'll read them as we do. The first under our feast is verses 20 to 22. The feast of Purim is memorialized. It's instituted for every successive generation. Not only the first generation, but every following generation on that day of that year, they are to celebrate the feast. The original feast of Purim was a spontaneous celebration by the Jews in light of the victory that God had given them over their enemies. Victory on one day, party on the next. Verses 20 to 22 explain how that same feast became part of the Jewish calendar, as I mentioned, for every successive generation all the way down to today. Verse 20. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually. Because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing, and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Well, as we've mentioned in previous weeks, the Feast of Purim is still celebrated to this day by our Jewish friends. One of the beautiful biblical principles that runs through the storyline of Scripture and so clearly in this passage, the book of Esther, is a consequence of personal salvation. This is what I mean. When you're gripped like the Jews were in the land of Persia by the terror of the coming wrath 
And then you experience salvation. In the Jews' case, from their Persian enemies and the allies who had conspired against them. Then what happens when you experience that salvation is an uncontainable, spontaneous joy. But here's the principle that runs through the book of Esther, the Feast of Purim, and our own salvation. That is, when you taste God's salvation, you are given a desire by God for all of God's people to share in the same blessings of the Lord's victory. Look at verse 22. The end of the verse says that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. just want to point out this concerning the institution of the Feast of Purim. It's a celebration of God's victory given in the days of Esther. One of the distinguishing marks of a heart that has been captured by Christ is a concern for our other brothers and sisters. In this case, the poor. Especially, we could say, the believing poor. What happened in the book of Esther was all the people who were saved all got to take part in the celebration whether they had the means for it or not. And this theme of God's heart for the poor is so replete in the Bible that we would be remiss not to just land a little accent mark on it this morning from verse 22. Do you remember in the New Testament, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, was in prison for the message that he was proclaiming and he was soon to be beheaded by Herod. But just prior to his being beheaded, when he was in that prison, that dungeon cell most likely, his followers came to him and were seeking to encourage and minister to him, but he had a question. And John the Baptist's question that he asked his followers to find the answer to was go to Jesus and ask Him if He's the Messiah. So John the Baptist's servants go to Jesus. And when they get to Jesus and they ask Him John's question, Jesus quotes Isaiah 35. To answer their question, Jesus says, go tell John this. In Matthew 11, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the Gospel preached to them. The good news preached to them. Jesus is emphasizing that His heart is bent toward not only the material poor, but it certainly includes that. Again and again, we find the same theme that we're seeing here in verse 22. When God's people are saved, they instantly start to have a heart for everybody under His saving grace to be able to experience His celebration and victory. In Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul goes to all the other apostles. This is as he's beginning his missionary journeys. And he goes to them and he brings Titus, who's uncircumcised, as a test case and says, hey, here's the Gospel I preach. That Jesus alone saves people by His work on the cross and by His resurrection from the dead. And all one must do is turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus to be saved by God. And Paul wants to know, is that the same Gospel that you all preach? And the apostles heartily affirm, yes, that's the same Gospel we preach. That's the only way any person will ever be saved. And then they said, Paul, go preach that Gospel to the Gentiles. We'll go to the Jews. But, Galatians 2.10, there's one thing we want you to remember. They asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Now, isn't that something? That right when the apostles confirm the veracity of Paul's Gospel, 
They say, there's one more thing we want you to never forget. The poor. Hebrews 13, we find that God is pleased when His people do good and share with such sacrifices. God is pleased. Galatians 6, as long as we have opportunity, do good to everybody, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Our Lord's brother, James, said it super plainly. My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing fine clothes, and you say to him, sit here in the good place. But you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. It is not the rich who oppress. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of it all. So the institution of the Feast of Purim, the memorialization of it for every generation was do good, share with the poor, keep this celebration going year after year after year. The second point under our feast is the reason that it was titled Purim. This is verse 26. Therefore they called these days Purim after the name of Pure, which is the, the name for the die, the lot that Haman had cast. Look at verse 23. Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pure, that is the lot, to disturb them and to destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the name of Pure. And because of the instructions in the letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants, and for all those who allied, with themselves, allied themselves with them, so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. Verse 28. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. Why did they name it Purim? It was a play on words from the name of the lot, the die that was cast, pure, Deborah Reed wrote in her commentary a sentence that I believe just beautifully captures the point of the passage and the reason for naming the feast Purim. Reed wrote, the fate of God's people. Do you believe this? The fate of God's people is not decided by evil men throwing die, but by God alone who assigns to His people their portion. They named the festival after the thing that the wicked man used to kill them. 
as a testimony of faith that God is in charge of it all. Do you see the directness of the play on words in the Feast of Purim in order to highlight the indisputable sovereignty of God? In this point of the sermon, I would love to land more of an accent on it, but the little accent mark that I'm trying to draw is really a question for your heart. Where is the rock on which you stand? Where do you put your feet? Are you in a free fall whenever life circumstances hit you that you're not anticipating? When some kind of interruption comes into your life or some kind of ominously bad news comes your way or some kind of challenge surfaces again that you've already walked through a hundred times or some kind of epic challenge that you couldn't have imagined being in, where do you put your feet? The book of Esther says you can stand on the God who is sovereign. His indisputable sovereignty. That's why they named the feast Purim. Nearly every week of this series, we've said the same sentence. Even when we can't see it, God is always doing the good stuff in the hard stuff. It's so abundantly clear in our passage today. Verse 24, For Haman, the adversary of the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pure, that is the lot. Now look at these two words, NAS, to disturb them and destroy them. He wanted to break their heart and break their neck. The flippancy that he used, just dehumanizing them into the palm of his hand with a couple of little rocks with dots on them to determine the fate of the lives of millions. How flippant was this evil man. But in the very next verse, it was the evil man who was executed and not the Jews. Verse 25, Therefore they called these days Purim after the name Pure. I mean, it may sound a little petty that the Jews would call it Purim, but it's not pettiness. It's a definite and bold declaration of the sovereignty of our God. Or as we've been saying it, all God's people can sing the anthem once you see His lovely face. He's always doing the good stuff and the hard stuff, even when we can't see it. Do you want to know how you can know that you can sing that song if you're a child of God? if you've fled to Christ for refuge, if you've given your heart to King Jesus, if you've signed the rights of your life away to the Lord of the universe, Jesus of Nazareth, do you want to know how you can know that you can sing the song that God is always doing the good stuff even when you can't see it? The way that you know you can sing that song is not whether or not your day is going well or whether or not you feel good on that day. It has nothing to do with the rise and fall of your emotions or the ebb and flow of the subjective aspects of our inner man. You know that you can know that you can sing the song of God's goodness in the midst of your worst stuff because of the cross. The cross. The hardest thing that God has ever done is put forward His only begotten Son to be sacrificed for our sins. And the Bible teaches And I quote, the hands of sinful men that put Jesus to death in the very same verse, Acts 2.23, teaches that the cross happened according to quote, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The worst sin that ever happened was the execution of the only innocent man who ever lived. And the Bible tells us 
God was sovereignly orchestrating it all. What I'm trying to say to you is this. The way you know that you know that you can sing the song of the goodness of God in the hardest of times is because in the hardest possible time, God was doing the greatest possible good. Why did they call it Purim? So that they could be reminded every single year that our sovereign God is doing the good stuff in the hard stuff, even when we can't see it. Number three on the feast, not only that it was memorialized and that all of God's people were to partake in the victory and that we should have a concern for the poor, and not only the play on words of the naming of the feast Purim, but third under our first point, look at the co-conspirators. Look again just for a moment at Esther and Mordecai. In these verses, 29-32, through 32, chapter 9, the author intentionally makes it difficult to discern for the reader exactly which person in the kingdom is responsible for the content of the letter and to confirm the Feast of Purim. Look at verse 29. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. He sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely, words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed time, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations, the command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. I can read the paragraph again. I've read it quite a few times this week. I've read some commentaries that try to help explain it. And the point is clear. You're not supposed to be able to tell where one starts and the other stops. And where one stops and the other starts. It's obvious from the, from the authorial intent that the writer of the book of Esther wants you to know that there were multiple people involved in conspiring to see to it that the celebration of God's victory happened. Now, at the beginning of the book of Esther, you've got to remember that neither Esther nor Mordecai are anywhere in the narrative. They're not even in the book in chapter 1. But here we are in chapter 9, whereas at the beginning of the book, the focus was exclusively on the Persian king Ahasuerus and his then-wife Vashti. In chapter 9, the focus is entirely still in the Persian Empire on two other people, Jewish cousins. Esther and Mordecai the Jew, who have been used of the Lord to successfully preserve the Jewish people to institute a new feast of remembrance and celebration into the Jewish calendar of God's victory over His enemies. And as we have said, it's still celebrated to this day. Dear friends, in this story, what do we see? We're seeing a mighty providence of the Lord to keep His promises and preserve His people. The victory on the 13th, month, uh, 13th day of Adar was not designed by God to show the wicked people who's boss. I mean, God doesn't just willy-nilly destroy people. It, just to show who's the biggest person in the room. The reason that the victory in the month of Adar on the 13th and 14th day happened 
was primarily to preserve the line of Christ, the Messiah. They were fighting for the Savior who was to come through their lineage. Had they been exterminated, that promise would not hold and all of God's people would perish. Do you want to know something extremely sad about the Feast of Purim? It's going to be celebrated in three months' time, almost to the day from today, by our Jewish friends. What's so sad and so heartbreaking and ought to move us to tears of intercession and action in evangelism is when they get together three months from now and read the entire book of Esther and celebrate the Feast of Purim and have all the pomp and show that goes with it, they're missing the entire point of the reason God preserved His people. The goal of the victory of the battle in the month of Adar in the days of Mordecai and Esther was to preserve the line of Christ. That's why the battle was waged and that's why the victory was won. So the Feast of Purim points us to a greater feast. It points us to the Lord's Supper. And it points us to the final feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It points us to the One who came through the line of the Jews who were preserved in Esther's day. Who with His own blood purchased victory for all of His people. Young and old, male and female, rich and poor, not one left out. Not one perished. Because the power of the blood of Christ to accomplish the purposes for which He came. To save from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. To make us a kingdom of priests unto our God so that forever we could celebrate. So today at the end of the service when we take the Lord's Supper, we're looking back. Not to the days of Esther only, but to the cross of Jesus where the real victory was won through the One who was to come through the line of the Jews that were preserved in the day of Esther. But we're also looking forward to another day when we're going to sit down at a table, Revelation 19, with the King of glory Himself, whose decree was not written in pen and ink, but was written in His own lacerated body on the cross. He became a certificate of debt for us. All of our record of wrong was written into His soul and embedded into His body when He became a curse for us on the tree. And He saved us from our greatest enemy. And one day, we'll sit at that marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, and King Jesus in His glorified body with the prints of the nails still in His hands and His feet, the wound from the spear still in His glorified side, the prints from the crown of thorns perhaps still on His brow, but in a glorified body, we'll sit with the smile of our King who will serve us and we will celebrate together with Him for His victory. That's why point number one, our feast... Reminds us of today's meal, the Lord's Supper, until we see our Savior face to face. Finally, three verses in chapter 10. Not only this Feast of Purim and where it points us, and the longing that the Jews who were preserved in that day would one day come to their Messiah who has already come for them, but this faithful ruler. Look at chapter 10. Verses 1-3, to Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Verse 3, 
For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. And great among the Jews, and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Do you see what we're supposed to see at the end of the book of Esther? That's how it ends. Three verses in chapter 10. Why would it end that way? Do you see what we're supposed to see at the end of the book of Esther? As this narrative unfolds in the story I tried to tell to you at the beginning of this sermon, we're supposed to be gripped passage after passage throughout the whole book with fear and trepidation. We're supposed to be experiencing the pump of the adrenaline in our body when we don't know what's going to happen when Esther goes before the king. We're supposed to feel the terror and the syndrome of absolute trauma in the minds of the people who experience the fear of being exterminated and annihilated. When they're wiped off the face of the earth, we're supposed to experience the jubilee that happens when the second edict is finally sent out from Mordecai to save them. We're supposed to experience the celebration that happens on the days of the Feast of Purim. But do you find it a bit strange that at the end of the book of Esther, we're reading about Mordecai. That should cause us to ask why. Why does the lens focus on him? Friends, let me tell you a summary of what we find at the end of this book and then see if you can preach this point in your own mind to your own heart before I say it. What we find at the end of this book is all of God's people with no exception, who were once tyrannized, who once lived terrified, now experiencing full victory. And to use the words of the text, peace and rest and fullness of joy and gladness feasting and sharing the celebration with every other person who's part of the Lord's victory. But, instead of focusing on all of them, or instead of focusing on any one of them, the book of Esther allows us at the end to narrow the lens of focus not to the endless sea of those happy people whose voices and celebration chants we can hear loudly in the background, but to rather look at one man who accomplished it all and who's receiving all the accolades and all the honor and all the attention. Can you preach that point to yourself? Mordecai and the greatness of his grace. As we see him at the end of the book of Esther is for us but a faint shadow of the greatness and grace of another. The Lord Jesus. Dear friends, Esther's narratives are true events in human history. I do not mean to allegorize them. I do not mean to paint with such a broad brush that anyone supposes that I don't think that it happened. It happened. 500 years before Jesus was born. But the narrative is written after those events, not during them. 
so that we would be able to look back on them with an eye towards something that God was yet to accomplish and from where we sit, has accomplished. This book was written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to serve as a catapult for your heart. And I do believe that God intends to cut the cord of the tension and to throw your soul into the third heaven. This book was written to catapult your heart through another event in human history. One that happened outside of Jerusalem at a cross. And one that was fully vindicated by God in an empty tomb that was borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea when Jesus the Lord rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. But this book of Esther is also meant to point you not only to that cross and that empty tomb of Jesus of Nazareth, the true Savior of all of God's people who get to enjoy His celebration, but it's meant to point you to a day in history that's on its way. I'm not talking about a figment of imagination. I'm not talking about fairy tale religion. There's no Cheshire cat in the sky. I'm not talking about a God who's a lucky rabbit's foot way over there who's going to give you a few little presents in this lifetime. I'm saying there's a day already selected by God when every last one of us will see the face of Jesus. And when we see Him, those who have given their life to Him in time will hear the anthem of what the Bible calls myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands singing of the celebration that Christ has won for us at Calvary. What will happen on the final day is all the saints and all the angels will become a backdrop to accentuate the awesomeness of one man. The Lord Jesus, the Savior King. And it's going to sound not something like this. It's going to sound exactly like this. I saw between the throne with four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they all sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain 
to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and everything that is on the earth and everything that is under the earth and everything that's on the sea and everything that's in them. I heard them saying to Him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Friends, Grace Church exists to glorify God by treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading His eternal joy. The Lord's Supper is a feast that reminds us that one day, we're going to sit at another table It's not the Feast of Purim. It's the Lord's Supper that reminds us we're sitting at another feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. When God will say to all of His people, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things, therefore I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Master. There's a celebration coming. And it's not in March of next year unless that's the day God has designed that Jesus return. But there's a celebration coming where God's glory and Christ's honor will be center stage and all God's people will be part of the endless sea of worshipers. There will be a feast that will exceed your wildest expectations, that will satisfy the deepest craving you have ever had, that is better than anything that I could possibly describe or you could ever imagine. And we want you to be able to join us in that forever joy. We want you not to go through religious routines like our Jewish friends are going to do in three months. We don't want you to show up at church on Sunday and do religious tip of your hat to God to put your tithe in the bucket, to read your Bible on occasion, and to miss the whole point. We want you to be as satisfied forever as you could possibly be. Starting now, we want you to join us at that great feast, the Lord's Supper, which points us to that greater feast, the marriage supper, when Jesus is going to sit down at the table with all God's adopted family members and welcome us into His own eternal glory. We've said it every week. And it's been hard for me not to say it already today, but I'm going to end it this way. And I saved it for last on purpose. We've said it every week, and I hope some of you can start finishing the sentence. I really believe that it's the main point of the Bible. And therefore, the main point of every book of the Bible. And I think very obviously the main point of the book of Esther. There's a sovereign God who's done everything required for you to know Him. And He did it in Jesus. And so here comes the sentence. Until Jesus is enough for you, nothing else ever will be. That's the point. Until Jesus is enough for you, nothing else ever will be. But boy, when He is. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we 
soon gather at the Lord's table, we would do so with a fresh (laughs) sense of the victory of our Savior King. And like that endless sea of worshipers in the book of Revelation and that endless sea of glad people in the book of Esther, we too would focus where the book of Esther focuses at the conclusion. On the one man who saved them all. On Jesus, the King of glory. So as we think back on what Christ has done for us and as we look forward to what He will yet do for us, we ask that You would cause us to trust Him. That even in the hard stuff, You're always doing the good stuff. And we ask that You would remind us to celebrate now knowing that for Your people, this life is the closest to hell we'll ever get. Help us to remember that You you will save forever those for whom Jesus died. Bless us now to glorify You. In Jesus' name, Amen.